about Moore's Law today. So, for those of you who don't know, Moore's Law was essentially this prediction in the 1980s. Oh, hold on. Breaking news. Breaking news? There was a trade accepted in our league. Really? I don't know how. So, Michael Fulmer got, got traded by a team that seemed to not be active. Uh, what the? <laughs> Wait, what the? Uh, for I'd Ian Desmond, uh... Bud Norris, and Michael Waka. Huh. Interesting. Ian Desmond DL. <laughs> Ian Desmond Bud Norris. DL. Bud Norris, who's, who's uh, arguably a top 10 relief pitcher this year. Then Michael Waka. Michael is inconsistent, but very useful. All right, sorry, go oh. ahead. I just saw that now. Yeah, that, that breaking news. This Justin. Um... Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Moore's Law was essentially this prediction in the 1980s that said that uh, computers would get uh, twice as fast about every year. And the reason this prediction was uh, valid for really up until 2005, so about 30 years, was because we were able to make transistors on... Uh, on processors smaller and smaller for 30 years. Uh, so since since the 1980s, uh, computers did get twice as fast every year. But in 2005, we hit what was known as the power wall, which meant that um, post-2005, computers aren't really getting any faster. And if you look in the markets, for instance, you know, processors are generally between like 2.5 and 3 gigahertz, for instance. Um, and the reason is we can make transistors smaller like we did before, but now it's taking a lot more power. So it's, it's infeasible, basically. So now because of that, researchers are looking to different ways um, to compute essentially. So like right now we have silicon based processors and in the future we're looking towards uh, computing such as DNA computing or approximate computing or quantum computing even. Um, so uh, I'm planning on discussing parallel computing which is the, the phase we're at right now uh, proximate computing, DNA computing, and quantum computing. So once we hit the power wall in 2005, uh, processors were obviously not getting any faster. So the switch that companies like Intel and AMD uh, went to first was parallel computing, which is essentially sticking multiple processors in a computer, in a sense. So that way you can run things not faster, but simultaneously. So if you've heard of things like a, a two-core, a, 
like a dual core or a quad core processor, that just basically basically means that there are two or four processors in your computer. You could think of it that way at least. Um, and I mean, it's nice. Obviously, you can now run like two or four things at the same time, but it is still a temporary solution. So, and this isn't just my opinion. There are researchers at UC Berkeley um, with some very big names in the field like James Demo, David Patterson, uh, Catherine Yellick. They're, they're, they were all saying that you know, parallel computing is just a temporary solution right now because sure we can run two or four things sometimes eight things at the same time but a lot of times we don't have um, that many things to run at the same time so there's no use to putting like two or four cores on your system if you're not able to use all of them and then on top of that, there are problems that you can't really parallelize. Like there are, there are some problems that if you throw more and more cores at it, you're not going to solve it any faster because you have to solve one step before you solve the next. So you can't do those two steps at the same time. So there's no use to having multiple cores. And then on top of that, Parallel computing is also power intensive. Not as much as making transistors smaller, but it is still power intensive and it is still a temporary solution. So there's actually a group at Georgia Tech called Crunch, which is investigating new ways to compute. So some of the ways they've been discussing are things like approximate computing, DNA computing, brain-inspired computing, quantum computing, there's all sorts of different uh, unconventional, unorthodox ways that we can build a computer. And there's a team of researchers all over the computing stack from computer architecture to theory who are working on determining uh, you know, which way is best and how to make that way practical. So one of the one of the uh, I guess straightforward solutions is known as approximate computing, which is kind of what it sounds like, um, in the sense that computers right now are very are very very precise. Like you can compute things with to a high degree of precision like several significant figures is what I mean. But oftentimes that's not necessary. Like that takes a lot of power, um, unnecessary power and a lot of unnecessary compute time. So approximate computing is how can we um, build a processor, build gates like logic gates and algorithms that can solve a problem not exactly but just give an estimate so approximation uh, in general has been around for a while in the theoretical community so approximation algorithms uh, have existed for a while but no one's been 
looking at approximate computer architecture up until recently and it's a pretty interesting field um, you know how can we uh, you know design a processor that's not exact but approximate but takes much less power and much less compute time is an interesting problem that a lot of people are working on uh, at Georgia Tech for instance um, Hadi uh, I forget his last name, is someone who does work in approximate computing, for instance, if you want to look into his work. So, so that's approximate computing. And then there's also DNA computing, which is an interesting um, approach since no one, or at least most people, don't think that we can compute with, you know, enzymes and stuff. DNA computing is essentially, you know, it's also relatively uh, what it sounds like. It's building a computer with DNA strands, uh, enzymes, and, you know, all sorts of bio stuff. So uh, the thing about DNA computing, um, so one question that a lot of people might come to mind or my people, a lot of people might have is how does that exactly does this work? Like how can you, um, you know, store things on a computer or compute? So to compute on a DNA computer, researchers in 2013 actually invented a transcriptor, which is basically a transistor-like device, but instead of having silicon, it has you know DNA and RNA strands. Um, so and since we have this transistor-like device that we can build using DNA and RNA, that means that all sorts of logic gates like AND gates, uh, XOR gates, OR gates, they can all be made with DNA and RNA. And since we can make those logic gates with you know, DNA, we can make a processor with DNA. So, um, so in terms of capabilities, DNA computing isn't actually that much faster in terms of single core performance against a silicon um, a silicon chip. But remember what I said before, where a silicon chip, a silicon um, processor, you can give it you know multiple cores, but it'll take it'll still take like a fair amount of power. But with DNA computing, with a DNA processor, we could have like millions of cores and not take as much time, or as much power rather. So for problems that are very parallelizable, DNA computing seems to be you know, a pretty promising field. Um, so, but obviously, or maybe not so obviously, DNA computing is still nascent. Um, like people were only able to solve uh, some very um, relatively like trivial problems for a silicon computer on a DNA computer in like 2002 or something. So it's still nascent. And keep in mind the transcriptor was only invented in 2013. So it's obviously still a nascent field, but um, for problems that are very parallelizable, 
like matrix multiplication, for instance, this could be a very, uh, very promising field. And then lastly, I wanted to talk about quantum computing, which is very buzzwordy in the field. And if you thought DNA computing was nascent, quantum computing is even more nascent. So the way quantum computing sort of works is, um, so in a, on a silicon-based system, you might know that every single form of data on your computer, every single file or um, your browser, uh, your homework, everything is stored in bits, which are either zero or one. So every single string of letters in your in your Word file is ultimately a string of ones and zeros to your computer. Now the thing about a quantum computer is, instead of having just ones and zeros, a quantum computer also has what's known as a qubit, which is essentially a superposition of zero and one in this quantum state. And that allows people, or that allows quantum computers, rather, to store more information and compute a lot faster than, um, than a silicon computer. Like, for instance, um, some of you may know um, uh, that prime factorization on a silicon computer is very, very hard. And in fact, the reason it's hard, the reason it's hard is the reason that uh, that cryptography really works. Um, and by hard, I mean it's hard to do efficiently. But on a quantum computer, using an algorithm known as Shor's algorithm, this is actually pretty fast. So um, that you know, building a quantum computer might lead to concerns over might lead to security concerns because a lot of uh, public key cryptography relies on integer factorization being a very slow process, but on a quantum computer it's uh, really efficient. Um, but again, quantum computing is also in a very nascent state. Um, most of the work in quantum computation is very theoretical at the moment. Um, one of the biggest researchers is Scott Aronson, who mostly does work in quantum complexity theory, which is essentially just a field of research that talks about what can quantum computers not do. So a lot of quantum computing research is still theoretical, and in fact, um, for instance, I mentioned that integer factorization is fast on a quantum computer, but we've only been able to factorize or factor the number 15 so far on an actual quantum computer. So there's still ways to go on a lot of these um, new ways uh, to compute, but um, they're very interesting. Uh, very interesting unorthodox forms of computation that we might see in the future given the state of silicon processors and given the state of Moore's law. 
So, hope you enjoyed that uh, interesting. Um, All right, we're running long here. So dialogue. Uh, uh, oh, you've forty-nine wrapped, minutes. You wrapped it up. Yeah, yeah, I think just to um, effectively done. Uh, yep. We'll be back next week with hopefully a lot of fun things. Uh, a lot of fun. Anything things. else you want to say? Uh, thank you, viewers. All right, that's enough from you. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk. We probably will I don't know. We won't have as much to talk about for baseball because of the All Star break, but we will be here on Thursday, I assume, right? Uh, I mean, I think so. Um, oh, happy belated Fourth of July to all the uh, Americans. All right, no one cares. All right, so hey, that's I, it. America cares. <laughs>spend a little bit of time here uh i mean i'm i'm gonna start I, although you can obviously weigh in um i'm gonna talk about something that's been in the news a little bit if you follow uh kind of more scientific or technical news um so if anybody has heard of the concept called the hyperloop um, which is a concept for a, a high tr high speed essentially rail system um, that is planned that some are planning to build um, connecting major cities in in the United States. Um, so several different uh, several different tech companies and startups have gotten in on this. Elon Musk um, has has plans for it. Um, so what's been in the news recently? There's a company called Hyperloop One which operates out of San Francisco. Um, they're planning to design a a hyperloop system um, in the San Francisco, Los Angeles area, uh, which would cover the gap of about 350 miles. Um, recently, they did a full systems test of their of their prototype system, and it went it went through without a hitch. Um, so that's a that's a very confident that's a very good step towards ultimately having this um, you know ultimately having this technology for a public use. Uh, so I know people probably don't know the specifications really. Um, so the way these work is, is it's a vacuum tube, essentially a huge vacuum tube all the way between the, the one destination to the other. Um, and then the cars are suspended by maglev technology. Um, so essentially there's no resistance. You can propel them up to enormous speeds. What did I say? What did I say the top speed was? Six, 600 miles an hour or something? Oh, I thought you said so 250. 250 is what they are predicting for future, for near future tests. Oh, um, okay. But for the San Francisco to LA one, they're, they expect um, to eventually achieve speeds around 600 or more, 600 miles per hour. So to put that in context, that would let you travel between the two cities, which is over 300 miles in right around half an hour. Right. Did which, I do that? Which is, or it's fifty uh, minutes. Yeah. Something, like, something like that. Fifty minutes. Three hundred miles, six hundred miles an hour. So yeah, half an hour. Sure. Fifty minutes. Right? Am I? I'm. I'm mathing, right? Okay. It's short. It's really quick. Okay. <laughs> it's really quick. It's like it's just you know, all told, you would uh, it would take you a lot longer uh, to fly a plane there. Um. 
It's obviously not because of the speed. It's because of all the other nonsense that, that goes on. Um, so uh, these eventually these things are going to work roughly like airports with several different tracks that will leave from terminals. Um, they will be large passenger containers. So it's going to be highly efficient modes of transportation. Um, and then it also in the news, um, Elon Musk, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is planning to design one in the New York... Philadelphia, Baltimore, D.C. area. So basically between those four cities, it's going to be a nice little system. Um, it's going to, a lot of people commute, obviously, in the New York and Philadelphia area. All, I mean, really all of those cities. Um, so that's going, to be a, that's going to be a huge boost to the commute time for, for a bunch of people, really. Um, so he recently, uh, he got the go-ahead to start development. So we're looking for that. It's pretty soon, a few years. So that's that. Hello? Yeah. Anything to add? Uh, no. I mean, I think I think that's I think that's everything. They run on uh, they run on Basic. Did you know that? Run on Basic. Yeah, they run on Basic. The what? entire system. Yeah, it's controlled by. I'm just trying to talk about CS. That's a lie. Oh. By the way, they don't. Okay, that's that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. That would be that like, would not be good. See, honestly, that seems so absurd that I thought you meant something else, like some sort of fuel that was called basic. <laughs> I was like, there's no way. <laughs> there is no way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, that's that's all I have about that. And anything else? Uh, anything else? Look. Uh, no, I mean, uh, sounds like interesting technology that we might see in our lifetimes. How about you, yeah. Daniel? Oh, wait. You have to do the impression again. Oh, uh... Yeah. yeah. He just says, yeah? That's something Daniel would say. How about... Okay, I, I think it's I can do this. One word response. Like, yes. Yeah, so... Yeah. The Hyperloop is... <laughs> it I feel like Daniel, Daniel, Daniel would like give a one-word response. I mean, he would mostly just talk about Lost or something. That's true. But okay. I don't know anything right. about right. Lost. Yeah. Daniel's editing this, so no ripping on him too much. It's probably that's, edit it out. that's just that's what we do after the show is over. <laughs> um, all right. Anyway, so we're yeah we're pushing fifty minutes at this point, forty minutes maybe. Um, so yeah, it's time to cut this off. <laughs> Alright, well, thanks, thanks for watching, or thanks for listening.